Welcome to Policy Brief, an informed and engaging conversation with policymakers, policy influencers, and public sector professionals. Brought to you by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. I'm Trevor Brown, Dean of the Glenn College, and happy to be your host uh, for this next installment. Uh, a conversation with my friend and colleague, Carter Stewart, uh, former US attorney uh, for the Southern District here in Ohio, and my partner on a research study that we did uh, over the last year, evaluating how the city of Columbus handled the protests uh, of the summer of 2020 in the wake of George Floyd's death. Carter, thanks for, for joining us today. Thank you, it's my pleasure, Trevor, glad to be here. So before I start pitching questions to Carter, a little bit different than normal policy briefs. Normally it's just me asking somebody who was the, the, the leader in some effort or endeavor. In this case, it was both of us. So we'll be talking to each other throughout this conversation. Uh, and, 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 and so hopefully Carter will be asking me some questions too, in, in, in addition to me asking him some questions. The other thing is uh, just to, to note that we are literally taping this conversation one year after the death of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. Uh, so it is very present in our mind, the, the, the sort of high level stimulus for this, this event. Uh, but my first question to you, Carter, is, uh, you know, a lot of reporting has said, oh, it was George Floyd's death that gave rise to the protests in uh, 2020. But it strikes me, and we came to learn this in our report, that it was a much deeper and, and larger context. And just paint that picture for us. What, what drove the protests of, of last summer? Sure. What we found in talking to the individuals we interviewed for this research project was that George Floyd's death or murder, frankly, was the trigger and perhaps the, the match, but the kindling was there. There has been in Columbus and in other communities as well around the country, long simmering tension between community members and police, not all community members, uh, certain uh, portions of the community, but they have been there for years. And they are, there are feelings that have been left unaddressed relating to police accountability, to uh, police behavior. And what happened to George Floyd was a triggering moment that allowed all of these underlying feelings and emotions to come bursting forth at, at, a, at, at the same time in Columbus and in cities around the country. So let's, let's also do the sort of the, the reverse, which is, so that helps explain why the community or members of the community took to the streets and gave voice to their grievances against the government, um, in this case around policing. What's the task of the police in a situation like this? What's their responsibility? Um, I don't mean so much for the underlying causes, um, the things that people were particularly aggrieved and upset about, but, but when people take to the streets to, to you know, uh, give rise to their, their grievances, what is the duty and job of the, the police and city leaders um, in those circumstances? In, in those circumstances, the police and city leaders want to protect people's rights to protest. It's a First Amendment right in our country, but they also have a duty to protect the public and to protect, uh, uh, they also have the duty to protect the public and also the duty to protect property. So it's, they're, they're 
I guess you could say multifaceted responsibilities that police have when a protest actually happens. And in this case, the huge complicating factor was that they themselves were the focus and reason of the protests. So they were at the same, on the one hand, they were the subject of the frustration of the community. And on the other hand, they were tasked with maintaining public safety, maintaining order, and protecting lives and protecting property, which is a very difficult position to be in. Yeah, and we heard that a lot from many of the police officers that we spoke to of what just what a challenge it is to, to be referee and participant simultaneously. Right. So, and and the, the part of the problem that they faced was that their very presence was an agitating had an agitating impact on the public. So on the one hand, the police were told, you need to protect the, the public, protect property. But on the other hand, if you show up, that might anger people. Yep. So it, it was, it was a, a definitely a, a difficult task. Yep. So what were we asked to, to do with this report? Why, why were we commissioned to do this? What was our objective? To me, this was actually a testament to the leadership in Columbus. This was a honest request from political leaders and law enforcement leaders to look at how they did in a difficult moment. It was a, a learning moment. In the heat of it, things happened, uh, events unfolded, but it, it's important when things go poorly, actually even when they go well, to, to look back to try to learn from those events. And in doing so, and asking for this type of review, city leaders were opening themselves up to critique and uh, to commentary, but they, they did it thinking and hoping that doing this type of review will help them in the future and will be beneficial to the future of Columbus so that when such protests occur again and everybody knows they will occur again, that the, the city will respond in better ways. And likewise, the, the city leaders wanted to know what worked well, what, what did they already have in place that we should continue to implement in, in the face of future protests. So why do you think they asked a third party, um, in this case, a, a university and, and you as a, um, as a you're, you're currently a lawyer, but I mean, you're trained as a lawyer, but you're not in a law firm, but um, you, they asked you to join forces with the university to, to do this inquiry. Why didn't you think the police department of the city just do it on its own, so to speak? I think they wanted to support the appearance of neutrality in terms of who was doing the review. If the police did it themselves, there likely would be segments of the community who would view it with more distrust. If the political leaders themselves did it, that might've been viewed with distrust either from the police or from segments of the, the community. So they wanted, and I think rightly so, an independent neutral body to, to do the review and one that had resources and expertise that could be brought to bear to do it well. The Ohio State University, the Ohio State University obviously is a great research institution that is well-respected around the world. And to have capability coming from that institution, directing their research, helping analyze it, that provides the neutrality and the credibility that I think the, the city leaders wanted to, to have this report received well by the public. And, and to that end, we can we can say that it wasn't just the two of us. Um, the, we assembled not just a, a team here at the university, but we drew on resources throughout the, the nation 
um, other universities that had expertise, other people in the legal community, other people in the policing community. And in particular, our key partner was an organization called the National Police Foundation, um, which is a, an independent entity that has in fact done several of these kinds of after action reviews and has a tremendous body of knowledge around policing and police practice and procedure. Um, so it, and it, I was also, a, it was a team effort. It, it was a very much a team effort. And I wanted to commend the volunteer lawyers who helped as well. I, we, we had a fantastic advisory body, as you mentioned, who were experts, law enforcement experts, First Amendment experts from around the country who agreed to analyze the data that we gathered and give recommendations based upon it. But we also had a team of volunteer lawyers who helped in the interviewing process to, to talk to police officers, to talk to the public, and to actually gather the data in the first place. So it was, it was a wonderful team effort between researchers, volunteer lawyers, and these experts um, giving their views. So you, you raised one of the concerns about if they'd done this in-house is the sense that it would be biased in some sense, depending on the who did it, whether political officials, et cetera. So now it's been a couple months, um, maybe a month, it's hard to, to count time in this era since we literally completed it. We've had a little bit of time to reflect. Do you think we were objective? Um, and, and what do you think the strengths and weaknesses of our approach was? Do you think we got it right in a sense? It's always hard to judge your own objectivity. And it's also been difficult in this era of COVID to actually get out in the community and hear what people think about it and to get their reactions and reflections. What leads me to believe that it was relatively objective is that I've heard equal criticism from <laughs> all sides. There are some from the police that I have heard said that the report was anti-police and dangerous, in fact, to policing. There are others uh, from the community side who said that this is pro-police and not helpful to the community. And then there are folks who've been in the middle and actually said, this seems like a pretty straightforward down the middle of report. It seems to be equal in, in terms of what I have heard from other people, what the perception is. So if that's any basis of, of, show, of demonstrating objectivity and that you're, you're getting equally criticized by both sides and some folks saying you hit it right down the middle, I, it was objective, as objective as we could have done it, I think. In terms of did we get it right and was it accurate, I think given the circumstances of the time that we had and the resources that we had, it was, it was the, the best product and I think a very useful product that we put together. I don't think anybody would argue that 170 people, and that was the, the basis for the data gathering in addition to looking at records and policies that, and video that the police supplied, but talking to 170 people is not a statistically significant number of people, but it all it does provide enough perspectives that you we, we got. This is probably not a research term, but we got a flavor of what folks experience on the police side, on the public side, and there were enough folks who were participating that, and and we were able to use their own voices too in in analyzing what happened and in telling the story of what happened. There there were enough people involved that it was. Pretty accurate. Uh, obviously, with more time, with with interviewing more people, we we could have honed it in a little bit more and maybe fine tuned it. But I think, given that the time frame, this was uh, the most accurate we we could do in that in that uh, setting. Well, and for those who haven't read the report, and we encourage you all to do so, we'll provide a, a link to it um, with the, the the release of this this video. 
um, there were a variety of other sources of data we used to corroborate um, our findings and recommendations, including administrative data, body cam footage, um, uh, sort of after action data that came from police. Uh, and so there were there were a variety of pieces of data that we could triangulate around um, rather than just say, well, this person said this and this person said something different. Um, and, and that gave me as a scholar a lot of confidence in the in the in the findings that we made. Um, and I should say there were plenty of things where I think we might have wanted to say something, but felt we didn't have sufficient evidence to be able to say anything, even though we would hear strongly from people that we interviewed. If we, if we couldn't find additional evidence to support a claim, we, we didn't make the claim. Um, so in that way, I think that the process was, was a sound one. Fundamentally, when you, you think about you know, what we were asked to do and now the conversations we've had with others, do you, do you see this as primarily a, a report and an inquiry about race, about policing, um, about First Amendment activity or all of the above? That's a tough question. I, I think it has to be all of the above. The, the framing of the report is all around First Amendment protests and the city's reactions to First Amendment protests. But policing and race were two fundamental components driving the protests, driving the reactions to the protests, and frankly, are directly related to the solutions to the, the problems that we're talking about and that we're seeing. So I, I don't think it's possible to take any one of those three and say it, it was not part of this report. So let's go to the, the, the report itself. Um, what, we had a lot of recommendations, a lot of findings. It's an extensive document, over 100 pages. Um, what, what in your mind, if I force you to say, pick me the one or two findings that you think and, and accompanying recommendations were the most important? What, what comes to the top of your head? There were some tactical findings that were, I thought were important, and then some more broad implication findings uh, that I thought were important. Same with the recommendations. The, the tactical findings that were critical were there's a lack of training. They, they had not, as a police force, as a department, been trained in how to handle First Amendment protests for five years. And before that, it had been another number of years so that they weren't ready. There, were, there was no preparation. The, the emergency operations center that was supposed to be set up by according to national standard to handle coordination and communication among the responders was not set up properly. So there, there are things like that, that that stood out as being really important findings. The schism between the police and the community, the police and city leaders was striking. And my, in my personal belief that without healing those ruptures, that we risk going through the same thing we just went through last summer again with future protests. So th those findings, perhaps not surprising in terms of their existence, but to me surprising in terms of their depth mm -hmm. uh, were, were some of the key findings. The recommendations that we are making, some are tactical, some are, are broader than that, but the tactical ones are obvious of regular training, mobile field force units that are already stood up and ready to go in these instances, groups that are able, police forces that are able to focus on individual people who are really acting in criminal ways as opposed to targeting entire crowds in protest type situations. And Columbus police to their credit have already taken steps to 
follow up on those recommendations. But the, the big overarching recommendation that I'm most concerned about and am the most worried about goes to the reconciliation between the police and the community. There, there has to be some coming together whereby the sides that are seemingly at odds uh, that was on such display last summer can actually come together and talk to each other and listen to each other and somehow start to it, it repair, it might even be the wrong word since these, these wounds have been longstanding, but to actually bridge the gaps that exist, that, that, that's essential. The, the, in terms of dealing with the next protest, the, the time is now. You don't wait for a protest to happen before you react to it or respond to it. You, you deal with the underlying issues and, and that has to happen now. And that, that is what I would call reconciliation. There also has to be some sort of reconciliation between the police and city leadership. If you have a mayor and city council office and, and city attorney who seem to be and feel at odds with the police department, that jeopardizes everybody's public safety. So trying to figure out how to address those issues and, and those ruptures are just as important to me as addressing the ones between the police and the community. So let's, let's unpack that one a little bit, both of those. So police and community, what do you see as the, if you were to guide, give advice to, to both the police department and community members, where, where do you think those conversations should start? And I don't mean necessarily like where should they take place, but around what topics should they, what should be the centerpiece of those conversations for reconciliation? Well, where they take place actually is pretty important. I, I would recommend that they not take place in any government building at the police department. I think they need to take place somewhere that feels safe to the community, whether it's a church or a synagogue or a mosque or some other place. I, I think they need to happen away from a government facility. In, in talking to the, the people that we interviewed, it was clear that there was a number of people from on the police side and on the community side who felt that any conversation would be useless, that either it was for show, it would be used for politics, or uh, from the community side in particular, that these conversations have been going on for years and years and years, and nothing has changed. The, some folks on the community side said, until there's action, until some of the policies that we've been recommending for years actually are implemented, what's the point of talking to the police? So there, there are definitely folks in those camps who feel that way, but there were also folks who said, absolutely, under the right circumstances, we would come together to have these conversations, and those are the folks who provide the most hope that they can actually happen. So I, my recommendation would be in a neutral place. I, I think that you, you wanna equalize a sense of power. Whenever you have somebody who has a, a weapon on their hip, that to me can, can represent an imbalance of power. So I would encourage police officers to, to come in in soft uniforms without weapons and start, start by listening uh, to the community and I, I would suggest to the community that eventually they listen to the officers too. This, this, these are recommendations that have been made for years. <laughs> and so to me, it's, it's really a question of leadership. Folks know what can be done. It, it's who is willing to stand up and take the heat to try to do it, both on the community side and on the police side. And I, I think there has to be some good faith effort to show we're serious about this, we're real about this. And the best way to do that is not to say something, but actually to do something to, to start these leadership talks and, and movement.
So we identified these two schisms. Uh, the first was the schism between the community and police, and the second was between uh, the police department and, and city leadership. And, and now, rather than continuing to diagnose, it's, it's more a conversation about how do we move forward from this? So let's start with that first one. As you think about the, the division that uh, we saw present uh, and has continued between some members of the community, particularly uh, community members of color and black community members uh, very much and the, the police department, how do we repair those, those divisions? How do you bring those two, two parties together to work in a constructive way? I think the answer to that goes in part to the reason why not more folks of color came out to speak to us in the first place, which was we heard people felt that they'd been talking about change and the need for change for years and nothing had been done. That was part of the frustration. And that's why some people felt that talking to us uh, may not have that much of an impact. I think that concern is what needs to be addressed in order to bring the two sides together. And that would entail the government, meaning law enforcement and city leaders actually acknowledging past wrongs and then changing policy, making it clear that they're taking claims seriously and actually doing something about it. It doesn't have to be everything at once or be everything that the community wants at once, but basically demonstrate good faith by showing we've heard you, this is what we're doing to address it and to, to change some of the policies we've had in effect. That first step I think is critical to then have the community say, they mean what they say. They're not just talking, they're actually going to take action uh, in the right direction. That will propel more people to the table. It's not gonna propel everybody, but I think the government leadership taking the first step to implementing change, real change, will draw people to the table. And at that point, there, there have to be honest conversations uh, between community leaders and, and law enforcement leaders about the direction that our society should go in. And it's critical that, that the police and city leaders listen to the community input uh, as they continue to think about what changes to make and what directions to go in. But I think it all starts with, with government leaders and law enforcement leaders taking the first step to say, we've heard you, this is what we're changing and inviting folks to the table. So let's now turn to that second schism, which in the way you responded to that question, it was city leadership and Columbus Police Department coming together to the community. But one of the things that was revealed in our report is the gulf between city leaders and, and the police department. And again, it sort of runs both ways, or at least there's, there's evidence to suggest a, a lack of trust in, in both places. How do we bridge that? gap? How do you bring um, police and elected leaders back together and align them um, so that they can engage the community uh, collectively? I hope that's one of the areas where our report will do a lot of good. It clearly lays out and identifies that schism, which in turn, I hope, will lead to both internal and external pressure to do something about it. The public will not want to see that schism continue. And I don't think the leaders themselves want to see those divisions continue. So I'm hoping that this report will help the, the leaders decide to, to come together and have those same tough conversations to recognize what has gone wrong in that particular relationship and to listen to each other and to, to air out the difference 
this this goes to the the concept of reconciliation again to the, the first step is hearing the other side but those types of conversations have to occur and then as a result of that uh, the there is an issue of transparency which i can help which i think can help both the schism between police and city leadership as well as police and the community if if people are transparent about their actions and the reasons for their actions even if there's disagreement that that helps heal some of these wounds that have happened. So I hope that in addition to the leadership talking to each other from the city side, from the police side, that the transparency in terms of what they're doing, why they're doing it uh, can all lead to some broaching of the sides and, and that constant public pressure, the, the outside advocates, the community saying, we need you to get this right. We need you to work together so that we don't experience what we experienced last summer again that, that type of public pressure, I think, is critical. So as we bring this conversation to a close, I want to look to the look to the future and, and sort of gauge your your confidence, enthusiasm, and ultimately hope about what comes next. Um, so we fundamentally we're looking at First Amendment activity, although as you were saying earlier, it's it's both um, policing, uh, race, and First Amendment activity. It's not just one or the other. Um, as, you, as you look to where we are right now as a society, and it's not just here in Columbus, it's nationally, do you see things that are constructive steps forward on, on all of those fronts? And, and then ultimately, what's your sense of hope about the future? The most constructive aspect of what's happening in our country today goes to the conversations that we're having on a city level, on a state level, and on a national level. And as I mentioned before, this is the most engaged I've ever seen our society and our communities being in the face of civil unrest and racial strife and First, First Amendment activity. So the fact that so many people are talking about it, so many folks are concerned about it, gives me hope that we're taking a step forward. You never know when the policies are going to change, when minds are going to change, when hearts and minds are, are going to go in a different direction. It can be it could be years before some of the reforms or most of the reforms that folks are advocating for come to fruition. But what, what gives me hope is the level of conversation, the depth of the conversation, and, and the fact that we have more generations coming up behind us. I, I am one who's always inspired by younger generations and, and youth and kids. And as long as we continue to have those generations coming after us, still pushing, at some point we're gonna get there. And I, 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 believe, I believe that in my heart. Well, on that positive note, let's wrap this up. Carter, thanks so much for, for joining uh, me today to talk about the report we did together. And, and most importantly, thank you for doing this, this with me and inviting me to be a part of it. I'm, um, as you say, there are always things uh, which if we had more time, we wish we could go deeper into and, and get more information. But um, I do think we produced a, a document that is a, a constructive contributor to, to moving the conversation and ultimately moving towards action. So thank you for, for partnering with me and with The Ohio State University in this endeavor. No, it was my pleasure, Trevor, and I have such respect for the work that you did and your researchers did and the fact that the, the Ohio State University was willing to take this on, which is a complicated, controversial subject, is, is a testament to the greatness of that university. So thank you. With that, we'll close. Thanks, Carter. Great. Thanks, Trevor. Got it.